Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds and those who don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where RevOps can feel like looking for Sasquatch, navigating through data forests and over KPI mountains to find that mythical revenue boost. Or is it beast? I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope B2B SaaS founders like you grow from traction to scale. Here, growth is more than just numbers. It's about crafting a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who build a business of significance while living epic, adventurous lives. Have you ever had one of those moments where you catch yourself saying something and think, oh my gosh, I sound so old, or maybe worse, hey, I sound like my grandpa. How much? How much is that? Back in my day, a good cheeseburger was only 10 cents. I had one of those moments this last week. A little friend and I got together for coffee, really good coffee. And we've both been in the SaaS world a long time. And as we strolled down memory lane, uh, one of us said, I remember when it wasn't even called SaaS? And then went on back when we started, it was ASP. Yeah, yeah, back in our day. And it's, oh no, here it goes. Back in our day, Salesforce was the only game in town. And storing data in the cloud was ludicrous. Remember that? Remember the prospect that asked us if we stored in the cloud, what happens if it rains? Yeah, that was my 10 cent cheeseburger moment this last week, but you know, we've certainly been at this a while. And as we had this conversation and kind of reflected over the years about all the changes, uh, so many of them through today, one in particular really stood out. And it was another term that just didn't exist at all, even a few years ago. And that term has blurred the lines between sales, marketing, and customer service. And I would take it a step further and not say just blurred, but they've really merged into a singular powerful entity. And that term is probably one that you're familiar with now. And that is RevOps, revenue operations, sales, marketing, customer service, all under one umbrella. And the more we talked about it and just seeing the market maturity and just RevOps and how things have transformed, the more I saw that aligning the traditionally siloed functions is not a nice to have. It's not a luxury. It's not just a good idea, but it's really become a necessity for streamlined operations and most importantly, a seamless customer experience. The market has evolved and continues to morph rapidly. I've seen more change in the last year. I've seen tech move fast, but never this last year. And customer expectations are at an all-time high. The digital landscape is more integrated than ever in some ways. And in some ways, I think it's more disconnected because there's so many different moving parts that we need to connect. And, and as tech companies, a lot of times we're just behind. The buying journey is no longer a linear path, but a, a web of interactions across touch points. We mapped out our customer journey uh, last quarter, and it looked more like a spider web than a straight line. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not sure, we can't force a linear path. We have to adapt as providers. And the shift calls for a unified approach where sales, marketing, customer service operate in concert, not in isolation. My team and I got together to retool our processes last quarter, and, and here's our strategy for better alignment of those three. 
First, it was about cultivating a unified vision and start by fostering a shared understanding and common commitment to goals across sales, marketing, and customer service. In 2024, it is about thinking customer first, and that's really difficult to do. It's easy to say. It is hard to do. That each team should not only understand their role in the customer journey, but also how it interconnects with other functions. Touch points and handoffs matter. And the unified vision helps break down those silos and ensures that everyone is working toward the same end goal. And that is a delighted customer and a thriving business. One example of steps that we've taken to, to bring those together and make sure that they're the handoffs. That's one of the big things is making sure that the handoffs are really smooth is having sales as part of a project kickoff meeting, bringing client success into implementation calls in that process. And the key there is making sure that we never hand off the client to a stranger. And that just goes to serve our, our core values and bringing people together and having different teams collaborating. And that core value is all in together. Second, we want to leverage data and technology. We have a huge opportunity with modern CRM systems to do this. CRM combined with AI and data analytics tools, harnessing data for cohesive operations is key. We've all got it sitting there and most of us are not using it. I think most companies are using maybe 10% of the tool they have and we're right there in that same boat, but we're committed to doing better. But leaders should invest in technology that provides a holistic view of the customer journey allowing for a more coordinated and personalized customer interactions. The more AI, the more we need truly personalized interactions. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens as AI becomes more of a part of what we do. I think personalized, really personalized interactions, not fake personalization, but real true personalized interactions will matter more and more. But the data-driven approach enables better forecasting, targeted marketing campaigns, and a more responsive customer service because we're all seeing the same thing in the same way. We're all in the loop. And third, we really focus to foster cross-functional collaboration, break down those silos. And first we do that by just encouraging regular communication and collaboration between sales, marketing, and customer service teams. And I get it. The bigger the company gets, the harder that becomes. And it's become exponentially harder over the years to do that. It could be through joint meetings, shared dashboards, collaborative projects. One thing that we did is created pods or teams. So someone from marketing, someone from sales, someone from implementation, someone from client success. And so they're on a team together and then add some friendly competition between those teams. You've got those cross-functional departments and people working together. I think that's really interesting. But when teams understand each other's challenges and their perspective, they work together much more effectively, creating a more cohesive customer journey and improving overall efficiency. And ultimately, it is about that customer journey. My big aha moment in this whole thing was that RevOps is not just a department. It's a mindset where alignment, collaboration, and customer centricity are at the core of operations. It's about moving away from siloed departmental success metrics to unified customer-focused goals. So let's embrace this shift and lead our teams toward a more integrated, efficient, and customer-centric future. Our expert guest last week was Janet Geeson, founder of JetPath Consulting. She helps B2B tech companies launch new SaaS products and initiatives. 
and that is startups that are ready for a rocket ride and big companies launching new products or product extensions. We got a peek behind the scenes of a $50 million product launch and some key lessons for our own launches as well. Our founder last Tuesday was Chris Strahl, CEO and co-founder of Knapsack, an enterprise software platform that unites product design and engineering teams in one single workspace. Like today, we're talking about uniting. We talked with Chris about the founder journey, choosing the right ICP fundraising and team alignment. If you missed either of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Chris Cabrera, the trailblazing founder and CEO of Exactly. Chris has steered the company to the forefront of the RevOps industry, outmaneuvering giants like Oracle. In addition to building an amazing business, Chris has just released an exceptional book called The Unicorn Fallacy, Ditch the Growth or Die Herd and Build a Company That Lasts. Man, that's just an awesome title. Chris artfully balances his CEO duties with creative pursuits, like writing books, and also crafting intricate river tables to nurturing his own wine label, Cabrera Cellars. We can all learn some lessons about building a thriving business and living an epic life from today's guest, Chris Cabrera. Hey, Chris, welcome to SAS Fuel. Hey, Jeff. Great to be here with you. Thank you. Love to hear a little bit about the story behind founding exactly. You've been doing this for a while and just dominating the RevOps industry over the years and, and somewhat just created the industry. It's been an incredible uh, journey. Uh, it's something we started the company in, uh, in March of 2005. And at that time, SaaS was not a very well-known uh, thing. In fact, I won't bore you with the whole story, but I ended up the reason I started exactly is I had been fired by the, my previous employer because I was trying to convince them that the cloud was the future. And they told me the cloud was a fad and there's no way that there's a, that the cloud would work and that I was insane to uh, be believing in it. And I just <laughs> was like, you guys are nuts. I'm going to go do a company and cloud's the, cloud's the only way to go. And so it's neat to see the whole thing go from that to where obviously today you couldn't even fund a non-cloud <laughs> right. company. So it's been a great journey. Uh, we took the company public in 2015 and sold it to private equity in 2017. And I've been running the company for over six years under the Vista private equity flag, which has been it's just a great experience. I think I announced that I'm going to retire as the CEO and move to just stay my board seat and really just focus on my books that I write and just being a spokesperson for the company rather than doing the day-to-day -day thing. 20 years is probably enough of that. 20 years is an eternity in tech years. Yeah, and if it's it, think about dog years, it's just it's forever, and that's really cool that to have the success that you have. You've grown, yeah. you went public, and then back to private. What was that transition like in going from private to public, and then back to private? Yeah, it's funny. My son does all these chat GBT things, and so like he he typed in longest tenured SaaS CEOs. He's yeah. Do you realize you're like the fourth long, longest tenured? <laughs> all the SaaS is like, oh my god, I don't know if that's a stat I want. But anyway, that's a good yeah, one. you know. Going public was amazing. It was a great experience. This was before, obviously, COVID. And so it was literally the old days of jumping on planes and doing all, flying around, visiting the run-up to the IPO, doing all the, the visiting the, the investor community and getting everybody bought in and then ringing the bell and being on stage at the NYSE and had have my family there on the stage, a little platform. It was a, just an amazing experience. Being public, 
I felt was a tiny bit of a letdown because I came up the ranks as a sales person and a sales leader. I was I I enjoy being out in front of customers and with customers and prospects and talking about the things we can do to make their lives better. I didn't really love going out, flying out to Wall Street, literally to Wall Street and having the same identical meeting eight times in a row with some fairly young, very smart, but very young investors and folks that had never run businesses basically telling you why your business sucks. And doing that for two years, it was probably enough for me. I really felt I really wanted to stay more in front of customers and prospects and less in front of investors. I just wasn't, didn't really tickle my fancy, if you will. And so when Vista approached me and said, hey, we'd like to take you private and help you build out this broader story that they had heard me talking about, this revenue platform, which we were talking about in those days, we were just beginning talking about it, but we still were just a compensation automation company, right? We were one trick pony. We had one product. And I was very excited about the idea of A, not being in the public eye and the scrutiny and having to do all that I just talked about, and B, having this rich uncle that was agreeing to help me go buy a bunch of companies to create this platform. And that's exactly what happened. And so I've spent the last six years, we've bought five companies, we've really worked hard to put them all together as, a, as one platform where all the technologies are melded together. And that has been an incredibly fun and exciting journey to now go back to many of these customers where we are helping them so much on this one piece of it, the compensation, and be able to say, hey, what about sales forecasting? What about sales planning? What about thinking about the broader aspects of, of revenue? And, and it's been great. It's been a good, fun ride. That's really good. So is that something in putting it together, you know, integrating, I think is, is difficult. Is that something that you, know, you really thought about strategically in, in making those acquisitions? How do we do this where it's a, a net ad and, and really bring those things together? Yeah. I mean, it was really important. I had learned from a, that previous company that I mentioned about, we don't speak of their name anymore. They, five years after firing me because the cloud wasn't the future, they renamed their company with cloud in it, which I thought was hysterical. <laughs> um, the other thing that I watched them do that I, I was always shaking my head at is they were just buying all kinds of companies because they could. And I was right. always important to me that let's not do that because that doesn't seem to make sense. Let's buy companies that make sense to our strategy. Let's buy technologies that really fit into our core technologies so that they're additive. So that when we go back to our existing base and we say, hey, we're already, you're already using us to pay all of your salespeople globally. We also know that you're using Salesforce for the CRM, but we also know that you're not really doing AI-based forecasting to really help them. And because we are doing the comp piece, that's a really complementary piece that makes sense and it's fully integrated. So in other words, yeah. in addition to telling you, the sales leaders, what the forecast is going to be using all this great artificial intelligence, once we're able to tell you, hey, you're going to close these hundred deals, we also, because we're doing the comp, we know which reps are assigned to those hundred deals and we know where each of those reps are in their year, meaning some are at 10% money and some are at 20% money and some are at 5% money. And so we can give the CFO a very accurate commission expense forecast, right? 
And so for a lot of these companies, ex- commission expenses like the number, the largest expense item in their budget. It's tens of millions of dollars and not getting it right or overestimating or certainly, God forbid, underestimating, none of that is tenable, right? And so having something that's from the compensation provider that's literally saying, based on the forecast, which is based on all this AI where it's pattern recognizing all the deals you've ever done and it's looking specifically at this deal this rep is saying is going to close, our machines are saying it's not or it is or whatever. These ones are in and these ones are out. It's a game changer, right? It completely changes the way people are thinking about revenue and going to market and estimating what they're going to expense. And that's a, that's pretty pretty darn uh, important. Yeah. Had I not seen press releases and looking at the product stack, yeah, I never would know that it wasn't all built together because yeah. it just looks like everything fits so well together and it's just all part of one continuum. And it just makes sense. Yeah. I think that's important too. We There's different ways you can do acquisitions and there's pros and cons, right? So some of the things that I've seen companies do is they buy these much larger revenue run rate businesses that are doing a ton of revenue. That's great because you immediately grow way bigger. The downside is it's very hard to do a, to really make those things, as you just described, integrated from the ground up, feeling like one product. We bought primarily technologies. They were not big, giant revenue streams for us, but they were the technologies that we then spent a bunch of time and energy and money integrating so that exactly what you described is the experience that our customers get when they buy the multiple modules from us. One of the things you mentioned was the flag earlier, and you've got a flag behind you with exactly... Tell me about that. You said it was the original flag that flew over the headquarters. Yeah, so first started, we had a little office in San Jose and very small. We were we started out with like 4,000 square feet and it was just a handful of us. And we had, it was a two-story building and we had access to the roof. And back then, we let's go to the roof. <laughs> I don't know why, but we <laughs> said that's a good idea. And we went up there and there's this flagpole. And so we said, hey, let's put, a, let's put our flag up there in addition to the U.S. flag. And Steve DeMarco was our head of sales at the time. And, and I remember he went up there and he, he literally sang the national anthem as we raised this flag. But anyway, this flag <laughs> flew for probably five years on that top of that building. You can see it's pretty tattered and whatnot. And years ago, some of the team members had it framed for me and gave it as a gift. And uh, I just, I love it. I cherish it because it's cool. And it reminds me of those early days when the company's a lot bigger today and got a lot done a lot more things. But back in those days, we were tiny, like less than a dozen of us. And it just keeps you grounded in remembering those startup days. Yeah. You've led through some really interesting times. 2005, very early for cloud, the recession of 2008. Then we've got another one and, and COVID. So a lot of different things. How has that shaped your leadership approach over the years? Boy, we've been through everything. Uh, you're right. And, yeah. it's been, and just when you think you've seen everything, then something like COVID happens and it's like totally different. I think it's shaped my leadership in the sense that the one thing that has stayed true throughout all of the ups and downs and good times and bad times has been the fact that early on in the company, we created some core values. There's four of them. They spell out care, customer focus, accountability, respect, and excellence. And we've stayed true to those things And as part of that, respect being one of them and this idea of customer focus, we've realized that even when 
the chips are down. As long as we stay true to who we are and we treat people fairly and with respect and we focus on the customer paramount, you get through it. And so we've done that. And we've had to make tough decisions like everybody. We've had our share of downsizing and rifts just like everybody. And But we've done it in a way where as best we possibly can, we've been really humane about it. We've, been, we've taken care of those folks. And when things turn around and get good, as they always inevitably do, we've brought those people back, many of them. And so we have this kind of boomerang concept at the company where, you know, we pride ourselves on hiring people back for whatever reason they left. We've had people leave and go to competitors and we've said, hey, you're welcome back. We don't hold grudges. We're not vindictive. Come on back. Now that you've had a chance, you thought the grass was greener over there. Now you've had a chance to realize it's not. What we have found is that those boomerangs, when they come back, they're twice as loyal because they've tried to go and, and leave the nest and realize that it, we have a pretty special culture here. And I, I think that's the thing that's made it tolerable through all the good times and bads, especially the bad times where you're questioning, am I doing the right thing? Usually the answer comes back, yes, just because of the culture. Yeah. That is really interesting. I know other leaders that would say somebody leaves, then they'll never let them back. So I think it's a really interesting approach. And, and I like that, that the, the door is always that. open. I've literally heard CEOs like they, they're, they're super angry and they hold these grudges. And I don't know, I never quite, I get angry when someone leaves. I especially get angry when they leave to a competitor, but sure. I have a short memory on that kind of stuff. And if they're good, and again, like I said, I really think I've made mistakes in my life. I've done things that I regret oh, yeah. doing. I look back and go, God, I wish I had done this or this differently. And so when they come back and say, hey, I realized that was a mistake. Like, I realized that exactly is really where I want to be. Like, why would you not want that person back? It doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. You've, you've been doing this for a while. If you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice uh, in the beginning or maybe a few, uh, what would those things be? Boy, that's a toughie. I think, I, I certainly think that the raising of money and all that, there was a lot of lessons learned there. I was, it's funny because I think we'll probably talk about my latest book, which is called The Unicorn Fallacy. And one of the yeah. pieces there of it, there is the unicorn aspect of it. And there's no question that certainly in the early days when there was the first and second and third unicorn, the original the true unicorns, the Googles and the Facebooks and those kind of folks that had these billion dollar valuations as they, before they were, when they were private. Certainly I was on the sidelines like, oh my God, if I could become a unicorn, that would be amazing. And so there was like a point in time where I remember it was all about valuation. Oh, we got to get the highest valuation possible and whatever. And so as we went out raising money, that was the mindset. The mindset was who's going to give me the highest valuation. And again, as a entrepreneur, there's no question that the high valuation correlates to you're giving away less of your company, right? There's less dilution. Sure. But it's an illusion because the, what I would go back and tell myself is, yes, there's truth to that, but there's much bigger things afoot, meaning the quality and caliber of the people giving you the money. Because when those chips are down and when you get into a 2000 eight, 2009 downturn that you didn't know was going to happen and you run out of cash, are they going to be there to give you more money or not? And thankfully I made some good decisions and some bad decisions. 
And some of the decisions that, in terms of your question, what I'd go back and talk about is some of those investors were not there for us when we needed them. And it's not mm-hmm. because they were bad people. It was because they weren't financially really able to. <laughs> they just didn't have the financial wherewithal to be able to do that. And so I think the big lesson for me was I had an old CEO that used to tell me everybody's cash is green. Every investor's the money, that it's all the values in the check that they write. That's just not true. I really don't think that's true. And I've learned that the hard way. The quality of the investor, the person that's going to be sitting on your board day in and day out, being an advisor to you, also being an inquisitor of you. Do you want them to be like the Spanish inquisition type of people or do you want them to be a real coach and someone that's helping you? And so I think I would go back and I would have uh, picked more carefully. Some of them have been amazing and I've had just an amazing experience with them and they were great and, and supported me all the way through right to the very end. And they begrudgingly sold to Vista because they didn't want to leave the company. They loved it so much, but the numbers mm-hmm. made sense. Sure, sure. That is a, you know, a good time to, to bring that up. Author, you've written Game the Plan, uh, co-author of Exactly Sales Compensation for Dummies, and the, the latest, The Unicorn Fallacy, which is an outstanding book. Yeah, downloaded it the, the day that it came out. And a fantastic book. Ditch the growth or, or, or die herd and build a company. Yeah. The growth or die herd. <laughs> yeah. That's, that was the big thing. And it was playing on a lot of what I was saying earlier. This, what ended up happening, finishing that part of the story, back in those days when, the uni, when there were true unicorns, meaning by definition, rare, very rare, this beast, this mystical beast that was never seen and was very super rare because it made sense, right? It was... It was really a term that was used for special companies, like the ones I mentioned, the Facebooks, the Googles, the ones that went on to become these Goliath giant, successful, right. financially successful companies. Then it became where everybody was a unicorn. That's why I talk about ditch this herd, because the yeah. notion of a herd of unicorn just is so silly. And that's literally what it became. Everybody and their brother, I would meet these young companies. I was toiling away, building this company, like just grinding to try to get it to 150 million. And I would meet these young kids and they start talking about their company that was doing 25 million and was a unicorn. And I was like, how the hell can you be a unicorn? Like, that's ridiculous. I don't understand it. It truly just made no sense to me. And I started becoming almost resentful of the unicorn thing because My company was past that. We had already gone further ahead and we were much bigger revenue wise. And it it just seemed like it became this ridiculous thing that the bar was this low to become a unicorn and everybody was pounding their chest that they were unicorns. And it was was just silly. And the whole point of the unicorn fallacy is exactly that, that focusing on the valuation drove companies and even investors to do dumb things and to build the company in the wrong way. And during these high go days, yeah, that was wonderful. And But now look what's happened. You now have tons of these unicorns that are either going out of business or will soon because they cannot raise money at those rounds. They cannot, it will take them a lifetime to grow into the valuation in today's world. And they've screwed themselves, if you will. They really uh, hurt their companies by focusing on the absolute wrong thing. And so that's the fallacy of the unicorn is no longer is it is if you're a CEO chasing unicorn status, 
you are not going to be a CEO very long. Conversely, what my book is all about, and, and frankly, what exactly is about to be there. And my life is so intertwined with exactly that I can't really think differently of it. But so the book clearly is talking about the, the journey of my life with exactly where I think building a balanced company, because the other buzzword that was being thrown around a lot was this rule of 40. And now you'll hear people talk right. about rule of 50 right. and even beyond. And again, like I can remember being you know, years and years ago being, what is rule of 40? I, I never even heard that term. I went to business school. I got my MBA, but I don't even know what that means. What does rule of 40 mean? Oh, you just add your growth rate to your percent of a dot. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And of course, we were never, ever profitable because all we were part of that growth or die kind of herd mentality, which was all we got to do is grow. No one, I would talk again, I went to business school. So I, was, there were, I can remember at times being with my board, should I be creating a plan that makes money? Isn't that the game plan here? We want to have some profit? Absolutely not. You should have no EBITDA. You should be just spending more and more on growth because that's how everybody's going to value you. And they were right. That was all anybody cared about. Yeah, yeah. Again, when the music stopped, the world, that all changed, right? Now, all of a sudden, everybody was talking about rule of 40. Even then, I think you have a lot of companies that are chasing rule of 40 in the wrong way, right? So you have a lot of companies running around going, we're rule of 40, we're rule of 40, aren't we great? No, you're not. Because how are you getting to rule of 40? Because my argument and a lot of the premise of the book is, if you're getting there by 40% growth and 0% EBITDA, again, like if you're a, a true unicorn, if you're one of these rare little companies that's way up into the right, okay, great. Ha hallelujah. But for the rest of us, which is the ma vast majority of companies that aren't right. that, you are probably doing things the wrong way, right? You're probably not 40 and 0. You're probably trying to get to 60% growth and negative 20 in EBITDA margin. And it's just, it, everything's out of whack. And my feeling is, and again, I can paint with a broad brush because I'm, I'm, I've already done what I want to do and I'm now writing books. And so I know there's people out there that are corner cases that will disagree with me and, and rightly. But just from a broad perspective, I want companies to think about balanced rule of 40, right? How do we grow 25% and have 15 or 20% or even 25% EBITDA, right? How do we get right. to rule of 50, but have it be balanced because... I just think that balanced approach is what will get you through the good times and the bad times. And I think that investors will ultimately realize that is a better investment. And it certainly will be better for the people running the company than these two ends of the spectrum. If you're zero and 40% or 40% and zero, you might still call yourself rule of 40, but you're doing a wing walk that's not sustainable. If you could use some innovative collaboration, encouragement, and fellow SaaS compadres to make memories with, check out Champion Leadership Group. It is the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. We're kicking off a new growth accelerator scale up this month, and I would love for you to be a part of it. You've navigated the startup storms and emerged victorious. Now it's time to elevate from success to significance. Zero fluff, just the hard-hitting strategies you need at the right time. We focus on capital-efficient growth, profitability that lasts, and achieving the kind of valuation that's not just impressive, but impactful. You'll gain access to a network of peers, custom growth roadmap, 
and the kind of operational excellence that frees you to focus on what really matters instead of just fighting fires all the time. If you're ready to crank it up to 11, visit championleadership.com. That is where leaders evolve and companies transform. Apply to join the next cohort and join us. Now is the time to scale up. Championleadership.com. I've thought for a long time we ought to change the definition of unicorn to a profitable SaaS company. Yeah. Those are a whole lot more rare than, than ones that are valued at a billion dollars or more. But fundamentals matter. And, and they always have. And, and for some reason in SaaS, that was forgotten for uh, a few years. And now maybe it's come back into favor a little bit. But it, it really does. And we talk a lot about that with our clients. Profitable growth. That's the, the profitable piece is, is important. It's We're in important. business for a reason. I, I, I agree with you 100%. I think one of the things that... I, I learned also years ago, I worked at a, a great company called Silicon Graphics for many years. And Silicon Graphics was a great, fantastic experience. I was there for eight years. And part of the thing at that company was we were breaking all records for growth. It was just, we could do no wrong. We were just killing it constantly for all the time I was there up until the very end. And the problem with that, and it's nothing against them, but many companies like that, is that hyper growth hides all the warts. Yes, and it does. When that inevitable growth, when that growth inevitably slows down, and it, you, know, you make a wrong call or something happens and, and, it's, and it stops or slows down, as in the case of SGI, all those warts start to reveal themselves. <laughs> People will talk about in terms of the tide moving out, and I like that expression too because you, know, you have that that I'm a visual person, and so you have that imagery of yeah. the. The high tide is, yeah, woohoo, things are great. Everything's <laughs> just, we can't have enough. Let's have Huey Lewis in the news. Like at lunch, let's have them perform for us. And then yeah. when the music stops and the tide goes out, it's holy cow, look at all this crap. And that's the problem with these companies that are hyper growing is in most cases, and I know I'm generalizing, but I think it's a truism. In most cases, they're cutting corners. They're not building the foundational bricks strong enough. And then the things will collapse once that, that top line revenue falters a little bit. This is the point of a more balanced approach. You build those bricks, you build the, the infrastructure of your company the right way because you're not trying to just cut corners to deal with the hyper growth. I just think as an as a entrepreneur, that's the better way long term. Oh, absolutely. And we saw earlier this year. In you know, the beginning of, of 2023, a lot of tech companies got in. And you see a company that, that gets rid of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of their staff and, and they continue on operating. It's what in the world were all those people doing? I know. Like <laughs> Twitter. What's up with that? Example. When Elon took over Twitter and fired 80 percent of the people, I was like, oh, my God, this company's just going to fold up shop and go home. And then. I didn't really see anything change. <laughs> no of, impact. Is, wow. Dude, that's insane. It is. It is. And I think growing smart is, is, you know, fundamentals have always mattered. And it, I'm glad to see that they're starting to be valued again, because that's how you build a company that's future-proof. That's how you manage the high tides and the low tides, because they're coming. There's yeah. no question about that. You've lived through them. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a mindset, too, of the CEO where I talk to a lot of CEOs and I, I think part of the thinking is I got to sell this company, 
right? And so everything is about a transactional sort of position where they're viewing themselves to sell to you know the next person. For me, I never really thought that way. Certainly, I, 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 no question, I'm, I'm guilty of thinking about selling the company at different times, and we did sell it to Vista. Sure. But the only reason I sold it to Vista was because they said the only way we'll buy you is if you agree to stay on and, and, and fulfill your this vision that you have. But so to me, that was oh great, I get to keep now I get to keep doing what I was doing. And I just have a rich uncle. That's good. But I think that too many CEOs are thinking more transactionally. And so when you think that way, you don't, you cut corners. You don't build to last, right? You don't build right. the company thinking about, oh, I want to, I want my grandkids to work here. So let's try to put these bricks in the right place because it's going to matter. And there are going to be some bad storms that we have to get through. I find way too many of the new crop of CEOs, they're not even remotely thinking that way. Literally, they'll laugh at me when I talk that way because they're just like, oh, no, I just got to get to X so I can sell it and buy my my, my Ferrari or whatever they want to buy. I Look, again, I'm guilty of some of those dreams as well, but I've always taken a much, much longer view of the business. Both of my kids do work at the company and my son-in-law, and I want them to work here for a long time, long after I'm gone. And so I really do care about where those bricks are placed and how sturdy they are from the beginning. I think you, you do build differently as a leader, whether it's a, a short term, I'm just going to build this and, and flip it versus really building for something that does have long term potential. It has a lot of runway. And, and ultimately, I think investors are, are getting smarter to that and really taking that longer term approach, because if they're going to get their money back and yeah. get the returns that they need, it has to be built that way. Yeah, and I think that the dirty little secret that a lot of CEOs don't get is you can do that and you can do both, right? What I loved about the whole Vista experience was, yeah, they want to have exits every five or six years, but they're perfectly happy keeping the management teams together to do it again and again. And if they sell half or all the company to another PE firm, the entity is still going on and on. That's why I never really wanted to sell to a strategic that would just take us out and the, the company that we created would just be gone. That was less attractive to me because I wanted to have this be its own separate kind of thing, which is, part, I think, largely why it stayed that way for all these years. Oh, that's really smart. As, as things are changing over the last couple of years, we've really seen that. How has that affected revenue operations forecasting? Because you know, what was forecasted in 2021 is drastically different than what's being forecasted now. Uh, how do you see that change and, and how do they, how do organizations get that right or get it wrong? Yeah, gosh, where to start? I think you're touching on something. We could spend an hour just on this one area. I think that, first of all, I, I love Salesforce. They were my first customer today. They're my longest standing customer but they're not known for having great forecasting. We never have, it's just not their thing. And really nobody is. There's, there's nobody that's really, most forecasting is still done with outside of the CRM. It's usually, there's always spreadsheets involved. There's, and I've been in the sales my whole career. I've done every role in the sales organization. And so I think that the, that sales forecasting has traditionally been so much of a kind of a backroom voodoo, largely, driven by the head of sales and either he or she has that really good feel on the business and can call the ball and is good at it or they're not. 
and forecast accuracy is bouncing all around. And again, remember, we have thousands and we pay hundreds and hundreds of thousands of salespeople all over the globe. And we have for 20 years and we have all the data. So we've seen this through every industry at every size company that the accuracy of, of calling the ball is atrocious, right? It is atrocious. If you're 60% accurate, like you're on the high end of, of good. It's crazy. And so what I think has happened over these last couple of years, really, is the technology has just leapfrogged, right? And now with AI, the, the facts are the machines are smarter than us. They're better at pattern recognition than humans are. And so if you can create the machines to have enough data, and we have all this 20 years of data, to allow them to do this pattern recognition, it changes the whole game on how forecasting is done. And so now in 2023, going into 2024, if you're not using these tools that have this capability, you're literally like in the stone age. It's what is wrong with you? I want to shake these you know, heads of sales because they still love their way, old way of doing forecasting because that's how they grew up and that's how they did it. Again, it's just a matter of time before either they get passed up and, and thrown away or they embrace the new technology because this is a time, and I've only seen this happen a few times in my career. It happened when I started exactly. It's a time where you, if you ignore technology at your peril, if you choose to ignore this, you will no longer be running a sales organization in a couple of years. I just promise you. There's, it's just too, yeah. it's too obvious, it's too powerful, and it's too good for the business. And here's why. So now not only can the machines do that, they can do this pattern recognition, they can help you call the ball. They don't do it for you, but they augment whatever voodoo you think you can do. But they also coach and train the rep because if the rep says, oh, I'm going to close this Acme Widgets deal, the system's literally telling them, I don't think you are. And here's why. It doesn't match the patterns that we see for these reasons. We're, we are analyzing the sentiment because we're listening to all your phone calls that are being recorded through Zoom, Zoom info. We're reading all of your emails. And so we're actually looking at the, the sentiment and the communications between you and the customer. We're looking at the frequency, the actual words being used back and forth, and we're comparing it to all the deals that have successfully closed. And guess what? Yours isn't. The sentiment of your deal is negative, the timeframes, where you have, blah, blah, blah. It's a whole bunch of stuff. Think of how powerful that is. As a sales rep, my God, I would have loved to have that back when I was a frontline rep, right? Because it's guiding That's you. Gold. On, it's absolute freaking gold. Right. Yeah. So that is one huge thing. Like I said, we could spend an hour just on that, but that's technology just making a leapfrog. And this we couldn't even do this five years ago. Right. This is really new, very cutting edge, very cool stuff. Remember that it's all tied into the comp system. So the CFO is benefiting because he's get, he or she's getting a much more accurate forecast. But then they're also getting immediately an accurate forecast of the actual commission amount down to the penny. That's very powerful. But there's a bigger thing, I think, going on, which ties into your question about this revenue platform thing. And that is, let me give you an example. If you, and I'm thinking more about SaaS because the conversation is a lot about SaaS and that's sure. most of the technology companies today. If you walk into a company and you have two reps sitting side by side and they're selling SaaS, traditional SaaS deals, and one closes a 100K one year SaaS deal. And the one next to him, closes a five-year deal, same 100K per year, but it has a built-in increase every year of CPI plus three, right? 
believe it or not, in almost every comp plan that I'm seeing, those two deals would be paid out to the reps exactly the same. There would be no difference wow. in the way that they motivated those reps. So now flip that around. You're the reps. Why in the world would you do a five-year deal with increases every, deal, every year? It, it, you get nothing for it. All you're doing is creating hurdles that are harder for you to get the deal closed. So you're just going to close yep. it as a one-year deal, right? Path of least resistance. Yeah. But people, most companies are not thinking about the value of a, of, of a higher quality revenue deal. They're just, they're so focused on that first year ARR that, that everything is just on that. All the comp is on that. All their thinking is on that. All the measurement is on that. And again, they're missing the forest for the trees. Because if you start thinking about that from now you're the CEO, which of those deals is better for you as a CEO? Oh my God, let me tell you. When you have a deal that is contractually obligated for five years or even three years that has built-in increases, you don't have to renew them every year. You don't have to worry about churn of, of that. When we first started this company, we only signed one-year deals. And so that meant every single year, 100% of my base came up for renewal. And guess what? I hate to admit it, but when you, what happens to you when you know, it's time for you to renew your direct TV or something? It's oftentimes, that's where you can make a change. <laughs> you can right, say, right. I don't like this channel. Around. That off. I don't like this channel. I'm going to cut that off. Or you know what? I'm going to move to YouTube TV. You're always at risk when they right. customer has a chance that that chance. We started changing this years ago. We built it into the comp plan that the the, the rep got paid more for a two year deal, a three year deal, a four year deal, a five year deal, and they got paid more and more for whether there was a three percent increase per year, or a five percent, or a ten percent increase per year. And so, lo and behold, we got to a point where we're only having 30% of our customers even come up for renewal in a given year. So think about that. When you have thousands of customers, I don't need as many renewal people. I don't, there's not nearly as much brain damage. There's way less risk because 70% of the base doesn't even have an opportunity to even, again, our customers love us so much they never quit. Obviously, I'm tongue in cheek. We all, everybody has yes, customers, yes. you know. But sure. my point is 70% of them are locked in contractually. So right. I sleep at night way, way better. That's an, those are just some of the examples of how if you start tapping into the power of this compensation and the fact that you can do these things with the, the new technologies that we provide, you, if you believe, I still can't believe it, 20 years doing this, how many companies still run their comp in Excel? And, and that's why they're not doing some of the things that I'm talking about because Sure. It's too hard, right? They're already hamstrung by these manual systems and they can't do it. Yeah. You're, you're not using, you're not taking advantage of the data. You don't have the AI for the forecasting. You're not incentivizing reps. And, and it's the greatest management principle in the world. People do what they're incented to do. That's right. So it's really tying those incentives to your corporate goals. What do you want as an organization? And, and tying compensation to that. That's why I wrote Game the Plan. And the, and the, the subhead yeah. of Game the Plan was... Uh, the title was Game the Plan, and then it's Every CFO's Nightmare, Every Sales Rep's Dream. And then it's because CFOs view gaming the plan as a dirty word. They should not. It's not a dirty word. You're hiring salespeople with the DNA. You should dangle the carrot. You just got to make sure that when they game it, you're winning. 
If they're yeah. gaming at your expense, then shame on you. You've created a very poor plan. If you create the right incentives, they you should want them to game it all day long. That's right. That's, that's the beauty of it. Like create something. It is like game mechanics, right? Create something where you want them to game it because they are going to. That's you're hiring them to do that. So always like I was always so annoyed when CFOs would tell me, "Oh, these goddamn reps are gaming me." <laughs> Are you crazy? Of course they are. That's what you want them to do. Yes. Yeah, it's clear. They're going to do it. So set it up in a place where you win and your goals are accomplished when they do that. That's right. Yeah. So smart. It's fascinating to hear your interest in exactly and the growth journey and then outside of that as well. Constructing river tables, which I think is fantastic. (laughs) Producing wine. That is really cool. How do the hobbies influence your perspective as a CEO and an executive? Uh, geez, that's a great question. I think CEOs, and I'll use the cliche because everyone says it, but it's true. It's a lonely job, right? You don't have a lot of people that you can really confide and tell your dirty laundry to for all kinds of reasons. And it's 10 times more lonely when you're a public CEO because you really got to be careful. There's actual... You, you can't jail. talk about a lot of things. Yeah, that was always like, I can't even tell my wife because I'm afraid someone's listening. It's like crazy. But... I think as CEOs, any job really, I think finding a mental escape where you can free your brain from like that that hum level of stress that just, just comes with the territory with the job. And what I have found is my art and, and some of my activities, when I do those, like it clears my head. Like I, I work on a lathe a lot, like turning wood. And so I got these you know, 20 pound pieces of wood that are turning at two or 3000 rotations a, a second or whatever, super fast. And I'm jabbing them with giant pieces of sharp metal. That's not the time to be thinking about whether the comp plan at one of my customers is, <laughs> is right. So my brain is really focused on what I'm doing for the right reasons. But when I'm done, I don't know, I just find like it clears my head to, and then I find that the solutions to the business problems that I was thinking about seem to come more, more easily because I, you know, you have that, I don't know. It's, for me, it's, I don't know, it just blows all the dust out and, and the cobwebs and gets your brain ready to get back in business mode. And I think you got to have that. Folks that just never stop working and never stop thinking and never stop stressing about their work. I can't imagine that. And so I've found that these, these outside things give me that escape and, and they're fun too. And I enjoy it. And, as I get older now and start thinking about retiring out of my day-to-day CEO role and be more of a board member and that kind of thing, I'm going to be doing more of that stuff. And I, I just find it fun. That's great. I love that. Winemaking, woodworking, wood turning, definitely meticulous process, requires some precision, requires talent, skills. Any parallels you can draw between that and managing successful company? Sure. It's a little bit of everything, right? It's you got to be prepared and you got to be you, you need to have a lot of this I've done is self-taught, but the nice thing is there's a lot of YouTube stuff out there. And I have found that by watching experts do it, I've learned a ton. And I think that same analogy holds true with CEOs. If you try to do this alone, you're going to fail, right? There's so many folks that have done it before you. Why not go, you don't have YouTube videos, but you can go get these People, this is why I love the work I do. I do a lot of work on other boards and on as advisors to companies, to CEOs, because I always thought if I could have someone like me now, 20 years ago on my board, God, yeah. I would have avoided so many 
landmines and pitfalls and d- dumb things that I did. I just would have been so nice, even to just have somebody on speed dial. I could say, hey, I, my board member just told me this. What do you, how should I react to that? And in my old days, when I didn't have a coach, I'd swear at them and yell and scream and throw things around. And I, I think I almost got fired from my own company two or three times. Most of these near-death experiences and I probably could have avoided a lot of that if I had a mentor coach. I I had mentors, but I'm just being silly. But anyway, I think that's one, certainly one example. I think the other example, the one thing I've found about woodworking is the best laid plans go out the window the moment you turn on the machine. And so like, I'll have this beautiful piece of wood, rare piece of wood from Africa that I'm going to carve. And I have this thing in my head, I'm going to carve this beautiful vase. And you'll get into it and I don't know, there'll be a knot or you'll cut something too deep or something will go wrong. Or sometimes you're cutting and a piece will fly off and just ruin the look of what you're trying to do. And what I have found is amazing with all this is some of the best pieces I have that I'm most happy with. And I'll do a shameless plug. I'm on Instagram at, at Cabrera Creative. And you can go look at some of those pieces and some of the my, some of my favorite pieces are nothing like what I thought when I started, right? They're the result of basically accident after accident and mistake after mistake. And yet I would adapt to those different things and say, oh, okay, I guess I'm not making a vase. I'm making a bowl or whatever, because you just have to roll with the punches of what life throws at you. And that is very much what it's like to be an entrepreneur. You just have to roll with the punches as every day guaranteed is going to throw something at you. That's fantastic. Where can people learn more about you and about the unicorn fallacy online? Yeah, I think the unicorn fallacy, we just came out with it on Halloween, but we're soft launching it. We're going to do start doing a big launch in January, but I believe it's on Amazon. So if you just type in yep. unicorn fallacy on Amazon, you can get to it. So yeah, on our website, exactlycorp.com, there's a link to the unicorn fallacy. They can go to Amazon also and just type in unicorn fallacy. So there's lots of places to go and get it. And I'd love to hear what you think. If you like it, send me a note. If you hate it, uh, maybe send uh, my PR person a note. But uh, no, I'm kidding. Love to hear either way what you think. Outstanding. And we'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. We'll have a link to the book. Of course, a link to Exactly Corp. And and to Cabrera Creative. Yeah, they're great. Love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Chris, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for being on SaaS Fuel. Really enjoyed it, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show and sharing your journey insights and new book, The Unicorn Fallacy. You know, it is definitely worth a read. You should go pick up a copy. You can get it at Amazon, and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Make it really easy. You can learn more about Chris at exactlycorp.com. And remember, there's no E in exactly. Just start with the X. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And check us out on YouTube as well. Full episodes, training videos, shorts, outtakes, and more. There are lots of thought leaders listening, and you're probably one yourself. And thought leaders share great ideas. That's why they're thought leaders. So please take a minute, share the podcast with a friend. They will thank you, and the team and I really do appreciate it. Everyone who shares this week gets a shiny new pair of Sasquatch Seeking Sales binoculars. Not only do they help spot elusive revenue opportunities, but they're also handy for that off-chance Bigfoot sighting during team retreats because you never know, right? Join us Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series where my guest is Reagan Bashara, founder of All Ease Accounting. 
She'll be here sharing financial tips, mistakes, and more to make finance all ease. And next Tuesday, we have founder Sahil Patel, CEO at Spiralize. He's a two-time CEO and expert at conversion rate optimization. So blow you away. We'll talk about how to test quickly, find winners, and boost conversion. It's your predictive CRO for B2B SaaS. So I'll see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!